Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Bunker Books podcast. My name is Nick Cohen. I'm a journalist on The Observer and lots of other places, and I am delighted to welcome former prosecutor Nazir Afsal, who's written a memoir, a very gripping memoir, of how cases that the law was ignoring, abuses the law was ignoring, honour killings, child sex grooming, how he and his fellow prosecutors brought them to the attention of the law and brought the perpetrators to justice. Nazir, hello. Hello, Nick. Welcome to The Bunker. I love this book for lots of reasons. And the first reason is one you make early on in the book is there are endless dramas about cops. There are endless dramas about defence lawyers, the Atticus Finches, fighting injustice. But there's hardly any drama or thought given to prosecutors who bring bad people to justice. Why do you think that is? I think the reason for that is because of prosecutors themselves, to be honest. I think for the best part of three decades, they've preferred to be hidden in the shadows, doing their thing without really any light being shown upon them. And that has been the bane of my life, really, trying to get them to speak up, do media, to get engaged with the public. Uh, I was always criticised when I was advising dramas, for example, no, Nazir, don't do that. We don't want them to know anything about us. Uh, I I just couldn't understand the sequency. And I think, Nick, it goes back to legislation, actually. If you look at the the Act, the 86 Act that created the Crown Prosecution Service, it talks about the service being independent. Unfortunately, for virtually all of my colleagues, that meant detachment. They they thought they needed to be detached or otherwise you might somehow influence my decision-making. And I don't understand that. That is what they believe. And that's the reason why they've, I think, calculatedly refused to engage with the media other than a press statement now and again. I was thinking about what you wrote, Nazir, and if you're a victim of crime or if you are a woman concerned that hardly any rapes are successfully prosecuted in this country... The prosecution is essential to you. The men and women who bring the cases are essential to you, and they are as much fighting for justice as the uh, defendants on the other side. 100% true. And, you know, you can't get a case into court now unless the prosecutors think there's sufficient evidence. Uh, When the case is built, they build the cases, so they make it as strong as possible. They also, that's their job, is to also filter out cases that aren't strong enough, so supposedly innocent people or people who aren't innocent um, because there's not enough evidence will not see a day in court. And when those cases do get to court, they're meant to ensure that justice is done. So that's a really pivotal role. And in most jurisdictions, actually, if you look at the United States, for example, the prosecutors are seen as really, really pivotal figures. But for some reason here in the UK, that's not been the case. You started as a defence lawyer. Tell us why or tell the listeners why What changed your mind? What made you uh, cross over to the other side of the court? I mean, I have tremendous respect for defence lawyers. We all sadly maybe need them at some point in our lives and we need to be represented. Uh, But for me, it was just not what I wanted to do. And I think there was one particular moment which I describe in the book of when I was dealing with a rape suspect. Uh, I was giving him advice and it was before the days of video disclosure where the vid- where a victim or well, less victim gives evidence on a video. And so it was a statement, a written statement. I'm sitting there with him in the police interview room and I'm reading to him the statement of the victim. And literally I could see he was getting off on it. 
Uh, oh, it was right. almost like oh, right. it was almost like he was enjoying what he had done to this particular woman there. And I just couldn't do that. I just couldn't. Uh, I thought it's not for me. I would rather build a case against this guy rather than try and find some way of being able to not bring him to justice. So that was my own personal choice. Because as I say, we all need defence lawyers and, and they're under attack right now. Your book, which I do recommend, not just because it's a memoir, it's an account of a reform in the law, maybe, is one way of putting it, or a reform in attitudes, which leads to crimes that were undoubtedly crimes, but were being ignored, being brought to justice on the killings, violence against women, uh, sexual grooming and abuse of girls. Did you see yourself as a part of a reforming movement or a radical movement within the law? Absolutely. I I think when I got into a position where I was in a position of senior management, I was a chief prosecutor, I thought, well, you know, my job is as oversight over, over 150,000 cases, whatever it was. But it's also about trying to prevent harm. It's also about trying to ensure these cases are properly developed and uh, prosecuted where necessary. And uh, and also, you know, most of the crimes that you've just referenced were hidden in plain sight. Yeah. You know, they were they were always happening, but we just didn't seem to we seemed to drive by, so to speak. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, I, I say I make I make no secret of it. I'm not an expert in anything. I think the NGOs, the women's groups, the groups of providing support for victim survivors, they're the ones who kept alerting me, and, and I'm glad they did to issues which I then use whatever influence or power I had to try and resolve. So I did see myself very much as an activist prosecutor. I saw myself very privileged in a position where I could bring some change. Uh, but the change really came from the people who were most impacted by our problems. What happened before when, say, I look, uh, I'm picking a group out here, someone like Southall Black Sisters, say, what happened when they talked about on the killings and went to the authorities b- before your time? Were, were they turned away or did they just not go? Did they think the whole enterprise was fruitless? I think the engagement with them and organisations like with like them was uh, lip service. Uh, I think that they saw, the by that I mean prosecutors and police for that matter, saw that they had to engage with these bodies because they were uh, um, loud, I think is one word for it, uh, but certainly they were, uh, well, credible. Uh, but then they went back and uh, the prosecutors and police officers would go back and not do anything really with the information they received. My experience, as I said a moment ago, they are the experts. So if they tell me that victims of honour killings or victims of honour crime just don't have any faith in justice, don't feel that anybody will listen to them, then I need to listen and I need to act upon what I've heard. But uh, as I say, the SBS and organisations like SBS really were ignored uh, as much as the victims themselves. And uh, that really is a testament to, firstly, the poverty of the institutions in not seeing how important they were, but also the way the, the landscape was. And lawyers lawyers talked to lawyers, police officers talked to police officers. Uh, and uh, the public really were seen as um, secondary. Why was that? I mean, racism is not a word I, I like throwing around. Was it was it a racism of low expectations? Was it, uh, well, there people out there, you know, we'll let them just carry on? I mean, you're talking about serious crimes here. Is it up to including murder? We're not talking about, well, you know, it's a, I suppose we could do them for drunken disorderly down the pub, but we'll leave it tonight. You're talking about the most serious crimes there are. 
The answer was that uh, these were difficult cases. And if you've got uh, tens of thousands of other cases, and very often you can identify the suspect, and uh, you tend to, uh, well, people tended to just do what they were comfortable with and what they thought they could bring to a successful conclusion. But when you have cases in which the, in some cases, you never find the victim, you know, I'm reading about Epping Forest this morning, the terrible death of a, of a young man. But I remember I prosecuted a case of a, a young girl called Tule Goran who was murdered by her father. We've never found her body, but that we believe her to be buried somewhere in Epping Forest. Point is, why would the police and prosecution deal with that case if, you know, the family were saying, oh, she just run away? And they thought they accepted the first explanation from the family yeah. rather than thinking the family might be responsible for her harm. Yeah. And uh, I think that was it. It was just these were too difficult or uh, involved too much resource. Uh, and we've got plenty on already. All your cases are fascinating and, and tell us quite a lot. But I guess the most controversial ones were when you took up grooming cases, young girls being exploited for sex in Rochdale and other northern cities. Why wasn't that an issue before? And how did it come to your attention? Until, uh, I think, until, until the late part of the first decade of this century, the focus on child sexual abuse was involving families, which is where it should be, because two-thirds of victims of child sexual abuse are within the family. Uh, and it's a credit, really, to journalism, uh, because Andrew Norfolk at the Times and uh, and James Harding, his then editor, uh, allowed him to just go and observe cases. And he identified a, a, a sort of ad hoc basis that these two or three cases were happening around the country involving so-called grooming gangs. And uh, and he was concerned, as the Times were, uh, that this was a, an issue that really wasn't being given the attention it deserves. And so I was alive to that. Actually, you see, can, can I point something out? A word that leapt out of me from your book. You said Andrew Norfolk's journalism was incendiary. This is journalist special pleading here. You're going to have to excuse me. And I thought, Jesus, what do we have to do? That's what This is what journalists are meant to do. They're meant to go out and find what the system's missing, what the system's getting wrong, what no one is taking account of. And somehow, even someone as broad-minded view is still thinking, oh, this can't be right, it's outside the system, it doesn't fit the boxes, this is, you know. Uh, why, why do you call this journalism incendiary? Because it's it set fire. Literally, <laughs> well, fair enough. It set fire to the justice system at that time and policing and prosecution as well. Quite rightly so. I think it's your point earlier on about the South Pole Black Sisters, for example. Um, they were scratch shouting and screaming about abuse and, and the like, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't seemingly going to make a difference. What Andrew and uh, the Times were able to do, and journalists generally do, is that they pivot what they say in such a way that it does get authorities and institutions yeah. to look at themselves. And so we did look at ourselves. And we, you know, when I moved to Greater Manchester, the very, pretty much the first thing I did, Nick, was to ask my team, do we have anything like this scenario of uh, so-called grooming gangs in our, in our midst? And they brought to my attention what we now know to be the so-called Rothschild grooming gang, which had, you know, three years prior to my arrival had not been prosecuted because these victims, uh, it was the view of the police and the prosecutors at the time, were just not going to be relieved by a jury because they had very chaotic and troubled backgrounds, all of which was just an excuse for saying, this is really difficult. Why are we bothering? There's an awful description in your book of, I think you're watching a video of an interview of a young girl 
and it's like the police officer is is mocking her, is uh, uh, treating her with disdain. Yeah, he's bored. Um, yeah. Literally, um, if, uh, that was played in court as well. He's got his feet on the table. Uh, it's a male officer interviewing um, a young girl who's been um, sexually abused, sexually assaulted, raped. Uh, he looks bored. He's yawning. How you know she's been extraordinarily courageous in reporting what had happened to her, um, but that was the it, that was her impression of what justice would mean and what policing would mean. And you know we've come a long way, thank God. But that literally uh, was demonstrated the landscape into which we had to move, or which I had to move. And we made sure uh, having I mean, that was girl A, we called her. She was extraordinarily powerful in her account. It was it was a no-brainer for me that we could build a prosecution on the back of her evidence and the evidence of some other victims. But for some reason, other people said it was too difficult. And I, yes, there is no guidance. You you don't you know you don't necessarily know how you're meant to support these victims when some of them, for example, didn't see themselves as victims. Yeah, but. We had to responsibility, and I took that responsibility. I did the first thing, first thing in my career I'd ever done, which is to reverse a decision not to prosecute taken by others, which is which is extremely rare. And uh, I had to use the phrase, the you know, legal phrase, that it was wrong that we, we made a, a decision that was wrong, and people were going, oh, "We don't admit to saying <laughs> we were wrong." But I was, I have to pay tribute to my boss at the time, somebody called Keir Starmer, because Keir supported me when I said. That decision was wrong, and it needs to be overturned. Uh, whereas, in fact, some people might have said, uh, we don't admit to that kind of thing. Let's go back to these cases. There are two accusations that swirled around, both of which you seem to say, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, you seem to say there was truth in, that uh, this is an accusation that increasingly was taken up by the far right, but doesn't mean it is necessarily untrue, was that there was a reluctance on liberal white people in the northern criminal justice system to look too hard at abuses mainly commissioned by Asian men. Was there, was there any truth in that? At the time, that's what I believed. Uh, and that, you know, I think I've as I say, there are some. It was some white people like Sarah Robottom and and others that did actually support these victims. But yeah, yeah. there was a there was a, a sense of cultural oversensitivity that uh, we have to be. I don't know. Step very very sheepishly in this environment. Uh, I think that had a part to play in it. The perpetrators themselves weren't well connected, uh, but there were others who, you know, local council leaders and uh, and some senior figures in the community uh, who undoubtedly gave the, I don't know, I don't know whether or not they did anything. I think it was, I don't think they did. I think the people working with them, the people, the white people in positions of authority made assumptions that somehow this wouldn't be accepted or this would be, uh, cause it would cause a, an element of hostility or tension. When in fact, by not doing something, you're creating hostility and tension. It's classic racism of low expectations because you're saying, oh, well, we'll leave these people, this is how they behave, we won't apply, apply the same standards to everyone, as if most Asian people in Britain don't want the same standards applied to everyone. We're, we're absolutely, and which is so untrue, 99.99% of Asian people, including my, obviously me and I know them all, were horrified by what these men were doing, but the, they weren't as loud as perhaps some of these other figures. But it was, I say, I think an assumption made by the authorities that the community would in some way be, I don't know, offended in something. Actually, that's so, that is, sort of, as you say, reverse racism. 
What about class prejudice? Because I thought that quite strongly, hearing your description of the girl in the police interview. Is there an element, and not just in these cases, but in other abuse cases at the bottom of society, that, 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 that this is just, for want of a better description, rubbish people, if, if middle-class girls have been involved in this and their parents had made a fuss, would have sat up and taken notice? You'd be 100% right. Uh, these girls were, were left behind. They literally were so-called troublemakers. Some of them were in care. Um, and, you know, some of the ones that were in care in the north of England were there only because they came from Essex or from the south of England, because the south of England didn't want them. They moved them from the south of England up to Rochdale and the northwest of England because, one, it was cheaper, uh, and, two, because they wanted them as far away from the south of England as possible. So class had a major role to play in this, uh, and these girls were literally the lowest of the low as far as some of these people were concerned. And the perpetrators were seen as the lowest of the low too. It was, I think your, your description earlier about just leaving to it was firstly scandalous, but secondly, it was an absolutely correct reflection of the way the world was at that time. Your book, what we've been talking about today, is the criminal justice system updating itself. There's, 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 a, there's a lovely passage where you talk about when you first started out as a prosecutor, you were having to deal with laws from the 1860s that uh, had crimes against stopping survivors of a shipwreck when they're trying to escape and and so on. Uh, The law's been updated. Do you still see that kind of reforming energy, that kind of uh, determination to make the law address society as it is today now? Slowly, but surely. So, for example, we've got online harms being addressed by a current bit of legislation uh, only 25 years after online was created. And even then, it's, uh, there are gaps in the system. Uh, but you're right, we're still applying the 1861 Offences Against the Persons Act. Uh, that's where your words ABH and GBH come from. Um, so we're still stuck in, uh, in many respects in the past. Uh, we're not updating with any speed. Uh, we don't. Uh, the Law Commission takes several years to come back with ideas and proposals, and then government takes several years to decide whether it's, by which time everybody's moved on. And, you know, Nick, criminals are way ahead of law enforcement. They will immediately tap into the latest uh, fad or technology or yeah. crime type, uh, whereas we're playing catch-up and catch-up so slowly. Um, Modernisation, you know, I was hoping, for example, now over the last year we've gone and used much more technology in court proceedings and stuff but i've just already heard that the judges are now saying oh we can go back to normal now uh rather than thinking actually this is an opportunity to do something very differently i'm very strongly for example in favor of televising proceedings i'm looking at the uh the trial of derek chauvin um in relation to george floyd and that's online streamed online uh, being watched by the public it raises public's level of education of what the legal system is 10 times, 100 times. But lawyers generally in the court system in this country are are really against the idea that the public should be able to see what happens in their name. And that means we can stay stuck in traditional practices over 100 years. Well, I mean, mean, it's bizarre, is it? Uh, uh, As a reporter, as indeed a member of the public, I can go into a courtroom, I can take notes, I can put it in a newspaper, or if if I'm not a journalist, I can put it on Twitter. You know, uh, there's no argument on legal principle against... Uh, cameras in court. 
There isn't, uh, and we make excuses like, oh, we need to protect the vulnerability of witnesses and victims. You can do that as they, you know, you can put, the camera doesn't have to be looking yeah, sure, at them. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, there are all sorts of things that can be done to protect uh, very vulnerable people. But actually, I, my sense is we're just protecting the lawyers and the court system. Uh, we used to have a tagline, Nick, where a prosecution service was working in the interests of justice, which internally was turned into working in the interests of just us. <laughs> and, uh, and that sadly reflects, I think, across the criminal justice system. That we look, when we look, talk about court users, you, there are court user meetings, it tends to be the professionals rather than the victims and the witnesses. Uh, and, and we always, if you were, for example, giving evidence tomorrow in a, uh, in a case, Nick, you would get a phone call at four o'clock tonight saying, Nick, I need you at X Crown Court tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. And you would say, no, I'm busy or I've got childcare or and they'll say, no, no, you are required to be there. Hmm. How can we possibly say that victims are at the center of the justice system when we still treat the public with such contempt? Mentioning George Floyd, I, I've often thought when people have written about the cry of defund the police from America and saying it's a radical left slogan. It's sort of of been the slogan of the Conservative government since 2010, if you look at cuts in policing, cuts in the Crown Prosecution Service, probation, prisons. Do you think, compared to the system you spent your career in, do you think it's cracking now, it's quaking? Way beyond, way beyond that. It's broken. It literally is broken. We lost... You know, people know the headline figures, 21,000 officers. What they don't know is that 21,000 officers had an average of 25 years' experience each. So you've lost half a million years of police experience, which cannot be replaced by 20,000 new officers from police school, you know? And, and similarly, when you've lost hundreds of prosecutors, including you know, me, never mind me, I wanted to leave, but there were others uh, very experienced who've left. It will you know, take a while for the junior prosecutors to get to the level of expertise they need. Same is true of the court system. Before we went into COVID, the backlog in the Crown Court was 37,000 cases. It's virtually double that now. You know, they're opening up these Nightingale courts, which is a, a absolute joke to me, uh, Nick, because they closed so many. They closed oh, of, course so they many did. of course they did. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, and Blackfriars Crown Court is a beautiful building been sold to. I don't know where it's been sold. Uh, and uh, and there's another Crown Court, another police and eight, almost 600 police stations have been sold. You know, there's a brilliant one up somewhere. Where I won't, won't say where it is, which is now a pizza restaurant. And you know who owns it? Organized crime. <laughs> and they opened it because for them it was a badge of honor that they now own a police station. What a travesty. I'm amazed the Tories have got away with this. I really am because uh, if you think how they used to be hammered on crime and how Labour used to be hammered on crime. Nazir, thank you so much. It's been great having you on. It has been very, very interesting. Yeah, pleasure, Nick. The Prosecutor, One Man's Pursuit of Justice for the Voiceless, is published by penguin all that remains for me to say is if you've liked this show could you recommend us on whatever version of uh, podcast listing service you're having us on if you want to subscribe to the bunker patreon you get free shows and tickets and all kinds of goodies you can't we won't believe what will be on offer once covid's over thank you for listening and goodbye The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, 
Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>